Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest, Julia Hart, is a real character. She went from being a Hasidic Jewish housewife to breaking away from her community, wearing 10-inch shoes, miniskirts, and selling designer body shapewear. You will know her from her very popular Netflix show, My Unorthodox Life. In this show, we delve into her old world and then transitioning to the high-flying New York City life as a businesswoman and her flight to freedom. And yes, we always talk about her first orgasm at the age of 40, the very fabulous Julia Hart. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kate, for having me. I feel honored to be here. It's our honor to have you. And you should know that when I started The Body Agency, I watched the other show on Netflix, Unorthodox, and I just thought to myself, oh, sex and religion, that's got to be really hard. And then you come into my life. And now I know what it's all about. So for everyone who's maybe lived under a rock, this is Julia Hart. She is the star of a show, My Unorthodox Life. And it tells the story of the journey that this beautiful lady has been on from being in a very religious, orthodox marriage, having three children? Four children. Four children. Ten pregnancies. Ten pregnancies, sadly a few miscarriages. But when we met, you told me the story of what happened to you. Now, before we go into that, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. I would absolutely recommend that everybody watches this show, My Unorthodox Life. I binge watched it when I met Julia. It's on Netflix. So there's two seasons. I have watched them both. They are amazing. And Julia is extremely entertaining, but also so motivating to watch a fellow lioness. And I do believe that we were separated at birth, Julia, honestly. I, I think really so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I mean, guys, when we met, it was like, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Oh, it's crazy. But let's start with where it all began. So you're originally Russian. Yes. You came over to the United States. I came to actually Texas. To Texas. Mm-hmm. Wow. And were you the only Jewish girl in Texas, pretty much? No, but we were the only Russian family in Texas because uh, my family and I were traded for grain through the Jackson-Vanik bill, which is, I guess, the precursor of the Magnitsky bill that exists today that punishes Russia for civil rights violations against Ukraine. In my time, the United States of America was punishing Russia for civil rights violations against Jews. And that bill was called the Jackson-Vanik bill. And my father was a political prisoner. He was a massive anti-communist. You know, he was arrested And so Russia got grain and the United States got my family. (laughs) Wow. Well, fast forward, you were brought up in an Orthodox Jewish family. And let's fast forward to what was said to you when the time came to get married. Well, I think we would have to make the distinction that I wasn't brought up in an Orthodox family because Orthodox Judaism, and I would say especially modern Orthodox Judaism, they live very normal lives. They go to college. They have choices. They read 
literature, they have televisions, they are full and functioning members of the 21st century. I grew up in a very, very small sect of the Orthodox world. It's the extreme ultra-Orthodox world. The group that I grew up in was called Yeshivish. They're the guys you see in the black hats and the women with the wigs with the multitude of children. So it's very particular to the sect of extreme ultra-Orthodox Judaism that I grew up in. And in my world, the easiest way to explain how I lived is if you've ever watched Bridgerton or where there's a fantastic show on HBO on like the women in Philadelphia. I can't remember what it's called. But any show about the 18th century where women are not educated, where they're considered to be an inferior intellect, where they're told that their purpose in life is to be wives and mothers, that's how I grew up. So just imagine Bridgerton minus the fabulous gowns, minus the balls, minus the intrigue and the sexiness. Just a woman is defined by her biology. All women in my world were told that our purpose in life was to be obedient, subservient, silent, and mothers and wives. So, by the way, Bridgerton, she had an orgasm. So at least there's that. Yeah, hey, I found out about orgasms after four children. So go figure. Oh, we are getting there. Okay. So you were then told by your family you were getting married? Was your husband chosen for you or how did it work? So the way that it works in my community is something called shidduchim, matches, again, like the 1800s. So it's a transactional affair, right? Someone has money, someone has privilege. So in my community, as the people who are the nobles, let's say, the people with rabbinic lineage, people who did not throw their yarmulkes into the water when they hit Ellis Island, people who maintain their religious integrity throughout. And so they're like the nobility. And then if you recall in the 1800s, what would happen? The nobility was impoverished. And so they would marry these American heiresses. So they would take American heiresses' money and American heiress would get the nobility. And that was the kind of the match that was made. It is almost exactly identical in my world. Someone has money, someone else has lineage and the two match. So... It's a business transaction between two families. And with me, I was given an opportunity to meet the person. I spent a few hours in their company. So if you could imagine as a teenager being told you have three, four hours to decide the future of your life and you don't choose the guy who you get to meet. You do, however, have a decision to say no or yes. So for example, the guy that I ended up marrying was the third person that my parents put in front of me. But at that point, they already had said to me, look, He's a third guy. This is it. Unless he's a mass murderer, he's your man because you don't get to say no too frequently. Right. And were you attracted to him? Well, I went on a hunger strike and refused to marry him. Because you could be thinner, not. <laughs> well, I thought, what can I do? I didn't have any autonomy. I had no power. It's not like I could say no. You know, I tried to think of, you know, what I could do to tell my parents how much I did not want to marry this man. And not that he, there was anything wrong with him. He just, he wasn't the right person for me. I knew that before I married him. And sure enough, life proved that to be the case, but nobody cared. And they're like, that's fine. You'll just look better in your dress. It doesn't matter. And that was pretty much it. Wow. So what happened on your wedding night? Did you have to consummate the relationship? Well, no, actually on my wedding night, I wasn't allowed to do anything because in my world, a woman who is menstruating is impure until she counts a certain amount of days where she has not seen blood, she has to take a piece of cloth, stick it up her vagina, swirl her finger around, 
And then, you know, women, we secrete all sorts of different colors. And so very frequently what ends up happening is you see something orange or yellow. You don't know. Does this qualify you as pure or not? So then you have to bring your underwear and the piece of cloth that you just stuck up vagina to a rabbi who just tells you whether it's kosher or not. If he says not kosher, that means you have to start your count all over again. So it happened to be that the day of my wedding, I was still impure. And so I was not allowed to sleep with my husband. And in fact, I wasn't allowed to be in a room with my husband. So the first few nights of my married life, my little sibling slept with me because I was not still allowed to be alone with my husband. And then when the time came, how was that first sexual experience for you? Well, now, again, in my world, there's something called halakha and there's something called chumrah. Halakha is the actual law. Chumrah is an addition to the law. It's the fence around the law that prevents you from breaking the law. So to give you a non-sexual example, you're not allowed to write on Shabbos. That's the law. So the rabbis created a fence, a chumrah, that you can't pick up a a pen. Because if you can't pick up a pen, you'll never come to write it. Okay. So in Judaism, the law is that a man is not allowed to look at a woman's vagina, lick her, touch her, or stimulate her there in any way with his tongue or his mouth. You know, he can't go anywhere down there. The chumr is that he can't touch her with his fingers or with any other way and that he shouldn't spend time on any kind of sexual stimulation because if he does, his children will be born impure. So what my husband and I were both taught, I knew nothing about sex. When you get engaged, a woman has something called a kala teacher. She's a bride teacher. And a man has something called a chasen teacher, the groom teacher. And they're supposed to actually explain how sex works. Instead, they basically tell you what you're not allowed to do and how if you enjoy sex at all, you're going to go to hell and your children are going to be born impure and be monsters. So what I was taught is that while my husband is entering me, I'm not supposed to move or enjoy myself. Instead, I'm supposed to recite songs. You can imagine how fun that is. And my husband was told that caressing me or touching me or kissing me would distract from his Torah learning and it would make our children impure. So he was just supposed to enter me, do his business, and then move to another bed. And we were not even allowed to sleep together in the same bed. You know, as you're telling the story, I realize that you're not going to be turned on ever by this, especially citing these ritual songs. But how does he get excited if he's not allowed to, like, look at your vagina or touch you or like, how on earth does that happen? Easy peasy. I'll explain to you very simply. Oh, okay. Do you remember when you would read books by Charles Dickens or... It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities. I knew it was Charles Dickens. I couldn't remember the name of the book. So there's this moment in the book where the man who loves, and again, I'm abysmal with names. He falls in love with this woman. He's never touched her. He's never held her, but he has her gloves. And just touching her gloves excites him. And the answer to your question is, when you're not allowed to touch a woman, when you have no contact with women, when you can't date them, when you've never seen them in a bikini, when you've never seen them undressed, when you've never had a conversation with them, just being in bed with a woman is insanely exciting. Okay, gotcha. So you basically, we won't go into too many details because I feel Oh, it's okay. I'm an open book as always. (laughs) You are. And you know, 
you are now one of the most sexual people I have met in my recent years. Who, me? What? Yeah, you. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I mean, talk about a 180, right? You really have gone to the other side, which I love. I think women should be very proud of the fact that we love sex as much as men. Exactly, exactly. And there was a very interesting article in The Economist today. The Economist, the conservative economist, basically saying that sexual freedom and sexual wellness is gone mainstream. And it has, right? And Ish. It's better. We're moving in the right direction, at least. We're moving in the right direction. But you told me a story that you were in this marriage, you had the wig, you were this obedient Jewish Orthodox wife and mother, and you were raising your children this way, and you were in this small community of uber-religious people, and you happened to see a show called Sex in the City, and you saw Samantha use a vibrator, and you went out and bought a vibrator. Now, I've been thinking about this story. I want you to paint the picture. Are you in your wig and your garb and you go into CVS and buy a vibrator? Like, how does that come about? Are there vibrators for sale in your community? So here's how it happened. First of all, there was no happened, right? In my mid-30s, I decided I wanted to leave my community. And it took me eight years to plan my escape. And in those eight years, I realized I have to educate myself about the 21st century. I lived an 18th century life. I knew nothing about the world outside my door. So at first, I began reading literature. Euripides, Voltaire, Descartes, Spinoza, Pantheism, Paulo Coelho, you name it. I read it. I had a daughter who graduated uh, Stanford University and the son who graduated Columbia. And I would make them send me their reading lists from every quarter. And they still have not sent me a book that I hadn't already read. So that was the first part of my education. But then I realized everything I was reading was 300 years old. I still knew nothing about the modern world. And I realized I was too afraid almost to read about the modern world because it was so diverse and divergent from the world that I was living. So I realized that In addition to reading all of this literature and history and philosophy, I needed to educate myself about the world outside my door. So I started instead of just watching television shows from the 1940s and 50s where women and men slept in different beds and you had television shows like Father Knows Best, I realized that I had to suck it up and not be afraid and start watching modern television. Was television allowed in your community? No, of course not. This is completely under the radar. I wasn't allowed to be doing any of this stuff. I was writing under a pseudonym. At the time that I lived in my community, I was writing for religious publications under a pseudonym. And I was writing a lot of poetry and I was writing articles for newspapers. But of course, they didn't know that I was a woman. So I convinced my husband to let me get a computer because it was much easier to write a computer. And he gave me a kosher computer, which means it's all, you know, you can write and all this stuff, but there's no internet access. And then I went to Apple and popped the internet access back in. And that's how I started watching television without anybody knowing that I was watching television. Anyway, so I'm at Sex in the City actually did not come through my computer. Sex in the City happened because my husband at the time took me to CES, the computer electronics show in Las Vegas, which is, I would say, probably 60% Orthodox Jews. And he went to some meeting and I was in the room alone by myself in the hotel. And I turned on the TV and there's this show. And it was called Sex in the City. And at first I turned it off because the name itself was such a shocker. Like I'd never seen nudity. Like I was still watching PG and it made me uncomfortable. It was a slow gradation of 
getting comfortable with things that were so foreign to my world. Had you seen your husband's penis? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh. I mean, there's no sheet. None of that's true. That's complete and absolute bullshit. That's not true. It's just that you can't do anything fun with it. Unfortunately. That's it's just mechanical. Problem. It's completely boom, mechanical. Boom, boom, boom. boom, boom. So anyway, so I'm watching this show and I'm purple with embarrassment because of the name. And this show taught me two really interesting things. And the first one is that women could live alone by themselves. I didn't know that was a thing. I know that sounds insane, but in my community, no women live alone. If you're single, you live with your parents. If you're married, you live with your husband. If you're divorced, you move back in with your parents. There's, you don't live alone. Women do not live alone. They're not, quote unquote, in my community, capable of taking care of themselves. Unless, of course, they have 11 children and they can't move back into their parents' house and their husband dies or they get a divorce, then yes, they live alone. But other than that, if you're a single woman, you're either with your father, if you're a married woman, with your husband. You don't get to live alone. You don't have a career and have an apartment and, and, and date and choose your life. And that doesn't happen. So that was the first big shocker of sex in the city. You're also not allowed to take contraception, right? Well, it's interesting. Theoretically, in the Gemara, you have a short window that you are allowed to take contraception as long as you already had a girl and a boy. Okay, that's, again, the law. The Chumrah is that if you actually follow the law or take contraception, no one will talk to you. Your children won't be let into school. You'll be embarrassed and made to feel like you're a monster and a horrible human being. So again, technically you can, realistically you cannot. So that's the first thing. I was like, wow, women are allowed to live alone and like choose what they do? I mean, to me, this is mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And then I come across the episode with Samantha and the vibrator. Now, I'd never heard of a clitoris. I'd never heard of an orgasm. To me, having sex was like going to the dentist. It was painful and uncomfortable and something you had to do because it's something you have to do. I didn't know that sex could be pleasurable. I didn't know that a woman could actually enjoy it. Literally, I enjoyed laundry more than I enjoyed sex, if you can imagine such a thing. Did you like your husband? As I always say, my ex-husband is a very nice person. I don't have any villains in my story. He was as much as a victim as I was. You don't think he would have liked to give me pleasure? Of course he would have. He was told he wasn't allowed to, and that if he did, our children would be born monsters. But did you have, and I want to get back to your evolution, but how long were you married and in this relationship for? From the time I was a teenager until I turned, until the week before I got remarried to my next husband. Soon to be ex. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of set the tone of the relationship, right? Obviously, there was very little intimacy. But Well, it's what I always say. It's not the man that was the problem. It's the roles we were forced to put. He was told... Put it this way. I got called into the rabbi's office all the time for an infraction like arguing with a rabbi, reading a book I wasn't allowed to read, studying the Gemara that I wasn't allowed to study. You know, my, my biggest problems were that I couldn't keep my mouth shut and I educated myself. And those were really bad, bad things. But as much as I got called into the rabbi's office, he got called into the rabbi's office. Control your woman. Why can't you control your woman? So what happened in our marriage, we didn't have a good marriage and I was miserably unhappy but it's not really his fault. It was the system that forced us into these roles that neither of us... But did you have a friendship with him? Did you laugh? Did you go for nice walks? Did you... No, because he was my jailer. And he knew that? Of course. I mean, 
he silenced me and, you know, ordered me around again, not because he's a bad person, because he's not, he's a lovely person, but because it was what he was told his responsibility as a husband is to do. I hold no blame and we co-parent really beautifully and we're really good friends. And I want to be very clear about that. He's a super wonderful human being. He was as much a victim of the system as I was. So you are now educating yourself. You have made it this. Well, don't you want to know about my vibrator? You originally asked how I got my vibrator. I was... yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. So I'm in Las Vegas. You know, Yosef's in CES, the consumer electronics thing. And I watch Sex in the City. And I get to the episode about Samantha and the vibrator. And I see this woman laying in bed, just pleasuring herself. And having something called orgasms, which sounded really fun to me. And what really enticed me was the fact that she was doing it on her own, that she didn't need a man, that she could do it by herself. So in Las Vegas, and again, you have to say, paint the picture. I'm wearing a wig. I have a top that's buttoned above my collarbone. I'm wearing socks on top of my tights, just in case if my tights ripped, a little piece of skin would show that would make me a monster. I'm wearing a skirt four inches below my knees. I look like a something between a nun and a 19th century librarian. And I walk into a sex shop and walk over to a man and say, hi, I would like a rabbit. <laughs> he said, excuse me? I'm like, you know, the rabbit from Sex in the City. And so he burst out laughing because I guess, you know, I looked so incongruous to the store that I was in. And he gives me this rabbit and I walk back to the hotel with this little bag and I am sweating bullets and so afraid and so excited at the same time. So I'm there and while he's there, I decide to try and use this rabbit for the first time. So I'm going to be honest, I'd say the first five times I literally peed myself. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I had no clue what I was doing. I was so scared. What did you do? Did you turn it on? Did you get naked? Like, what did you do? I got naked. I went in the bed. I turned it on. I played around. And every time I came close to coming, I got so scared. I literally peed. Like, I actually peed. And then I would say that happened probably five, six times. And then, of course, my husband came home and I hid it. And so in those few days, while he would go to CES... I would just lay in bed and play with the vibrator until I had my first orgasm. And then there was this like explosion of, I think the biggest, other than the obvious incredible pleasure of an orgasm, the greatest pleasure was that it was something I did for myself. Yeah, I didn't need a man. I didn't need anyone's permission. I didn't need an extraneous anything. That it was that I myself was capable of giving myself pleasure. And that felt like the most empowering, powerful thing that I'd ever experienced in my life. So did you then start whipping it out every day? Like, <laughs> Well, first of all, you should have seen this vibrator. It was <laughs> this, I don't remember those original vibrators. They were giant. Giant. Uh, <laughs> giant. So try imagine hiding a vibrator and you're not supposed to have one. Uh, and it's very loud. It sounded like an airplane carrier coming in. So, so I hid it in places I knew my husband was never going to look. And I would only whip it out when everyone was not home. And were you thinking about the rabbi at all? And thinking about if the rabbi was to find you with this, what would happen to you? At that point, I was at the place where 
I was still very religious. I still believed in God and all the things, but I no longer wanted to be fundamentalist. And I had, look, my biggest sin was that I was educating myself, right? The Gemara is written in Aramaic. So I taught myself Aramaic so that I could learn Gemara. You know, I read more Maharal and Ramban and Ramban and all these commentaries than most men. And so the problem would happen is some guy would quote something and it was, he was wrong and I would correct him and then I'd get sent to the rabbi's office. So my biggest flaw always was that I couldn't keep my mouth shut and that I was too educated. And I'm not talking about secular education. I'm just talking about religious education. I had an entire library of books in my house that I wasn't allowed to read because in my community, there's a concept of Nushim Daitin Kalos, which means a woman's mind is light, which means she's incapable of grasping deep and esoteric subjects. And there's another concept in the Gemara that says if a man educates his daughter, he's teaching her prostitution. Now, I'm going to promise you something. Rabbis in my community point to me today and say, you see, Julia Hart learned Gemara and look what happened to her. An educated woman is a dangerous woman. So my problem was that I was too educated. Again, not talking about psychoeducation at all because I had zero. I'm just talking about religious education. I read the commentaries and the philosophers that I wasn't allowed to read. So that was my biggest flaw. So by the time I decided to plan my escape, and it took me eight years to plan my escape, at that point, I stopped following any chumrah, any additional fence around the law. I kept all the laws, but there was nowhere in the Torah and nowhere in the Gemara that it said a woman can have an orgasm. So I didn't feel an iota of guilt because there was nothing wrong with it. It was men adding these constructs that created these nonsensical rules. It was not in the Bible. It was not in the Gemara. And so I didn't feel an iota of guilt. I just felt pure, unadulterated pleasure. Amazing. Now, did you happen to tell this story to any other woman in your community? Or was this your secret? No. Okay. I didn't tell anyone anything. I didn't tell anyone about my plan to escape. Then you hear something so funny. My friends thought I worked for the CIA or the Mossad because I would just disappear and no one knew what I was doing and I wouldn't talk about it. You know what I was doing? I was walking to Barnes and Noble and reading and educating myself. And not a single one of my friends knew because I was afraid that if they knew, they would feel that they would be saving my children's souls by telling their husbands and their husbands would tell my husband and someone would tell the rabbi and my kids would get taken away from me. So I told not a single living human being. I walked out of my community in 2012 and the entire community was beyond shocked because I had never said a single solitary word. Okay, so we have a lot to cover. So I'm going to fast forward. And again, everyone can watch this story and understand more about the story by tuning in to Julia's show on Netflix, My Unorthodox Life. I do want to say, Kate, that the show is really my present. It's not about my past. If you want my past, you got to read my book, Brazen. Oh, there you go. All right. Yep, there is a book. Definitely worth a read. Julia, I know you today, right? Let me explain to the listeners how I know you and what <laughs> I see you as now, right? You like to say that you're nine years old because you've been nine years now in this new life. To summarize, you left your Orthodox community. You met your next husband, and you grew this empire to a billion-dollar enterprise. And guys, let me tell you something about this woman. <laughs> she is on fire, on fire. 
everything she touches turns to gold. Like, seriously. So I was at her house the other night. She walked out looking like Jessica Rabbit in her... I hope you Google Jessica Rabbit because I just kept looking at you going, you're a Jewish Jessica Rabbit. Like, she was wearing this shapewear that she designed and I need to get my hands on that shapewear. It's absolutely gorgeous. This lace shapewear with her boobs out and... You know, she'd taken these shots of herself in the library, reaching for books with her butt hanging out. And like, we're talking a complete 180 here. But anyway, the point is you are very inspirational as a woman, as a woman leader. You've built empires. You keep recreating these brands and things that you're interested in. And we had a conversation and I said, well, what's the one thing that you want now in your life for other women. And you said freedom, freedom in education, freedom in sexuality, freedom in general, and complete equality, right? So you really have gone from zero to a hundred very, very quickly. Tell us about that journey. And, you know, how did you go from, of course, a very book smart, but closeted woman in a way to running this empire. You started a modeling agency that became a media brand talent agency. Tell us about that and how you built that. Well, you know, people tend to see what is. I tend to see what can be. And what I saw when I took over the company was that it was a traditional modeling agency. It was valued at $70 million. It was about runways and billboards. And I realized that we had an opportunity to shift the power dynamic because... And your new husband had started this company, right? No, no, he hadn't started. It was actually started by a guy named John Casablancas. He bought it two owners after John Casablancas. So he had bought it. He tried to sell it in 2018. He couldn't even get $70 million for it. And in 2019, I took it over. And it was a traditional modding agency. It was fine. Oh, good. But what I realized is that with the advent of social media... What is media in the end? Media is whoever has the audience. I realized that I could shift the power dynamic to my talent because they had the audience. No one was treating them as media. But the reality is, why would you go to Vogue magazine to look at what Kendall Jenner is wearing when you could go on Kendall's page and see what Kendall was wearing? The beauty, I mean, there's a lot of problems with the internet and with social media. I mean, I know that better than most because, you know, you could imagine since my divorce started, you know, I've been maligned and accused and all sorts of crazy things because, you know, it's all very easy when you don't have to look at the person in the face. But the beauty of social media, and I tend to see the beauty in things, is that it democratized creativity. It wasn't about the coterie of fashion elite. It wasn't about the creative directors or the fashion editors or fashion photographers. It was about the talent. And so I brought in, I didn't care if you were a deep sea diver, a mountain climber, a rollerblader, a tennis player, a fencer. If you had an audience, I transformed you into a media conglomerate. And then I aggregated all. And this gave you the power. It gave women the power for the first time because it wasn't about them standing in a line and some guy saying too fat, too thin, too this, too that. It was who are you intrinsically as a human being? What matters to you? And then Think about what's the difference between an NBC and one of my talent social media. An NBC has producers, writers, directors, filmographers, content creators. Just because you can hit a tennis ball or walk a runway does not mean you know how to create and curate compelling content. So I brought all that in-house and started training our talent to 
monetize their social media. And then I realized I was sitting on 2.2 billion people's data. And so I aggregated that to try and make advertising more honest. Because what we would do, we would connect by having all that data and analytics, because in order to monetize my talent social media, I needed their username and password. The minute I had that, I could data mine that. And so I could actually put brands together with the products they actually believed in. And I also created avatars because my original idea, this is 2019. And when I started trying to take the company public, which was during COVID, my bankers said, Julie, don't put the stuff about avatars and people are not going to understand what you're talking about. Of course, the minute Facebook became meta, they're like, oh yeah, Julia, can you put that stuff in that you're doing about avatars, right? When a man said it, then it made sense. But our first big campaign with avatars and utilizing my data and analytics was for Steve Madden. And Steve Madden, it was the first time in history, in history, in the third quarter's earning report, the CEO of Steve Madden said that they had the highest record of sales and the most hits on their website in the history of the company. And they literally referenced and said that it is due to my campaign. And that's why we got valued in two years through COVID without a dollar of outside investment from a $70 million modeling agency into a $1.1 billion media by Jeffrey's Bank. And I think what's so admirable about you as well is at the heart, excuse the pun, of everything that you do is wanting to help other women. And I can see that, I can feel it, I can hear it, all the interactions that we have. And you can also see it on your show, how you interact with your daughters. And, you know, what you just described before at the beginning of this podcast is immense suppression. Like, as you say, the 18th century way of looking at how women have been treated in the past. And, you know, with everything that's going on right now in society with, you know, the abortion laws and where you originally came from in Texas, it's happening mainstream. It's not about just religion anymore. It's really taking on a whole new life. And for somebody who's been advocating for women for, you know, 25, 30 years, it's extremely disheartening to see what's happening. But people like you, Julia, who have an audience like you do, and I know you've told me that you get thousands of DMs every single day from women who have been moved by your story and feel the same way. And we hear millions of stories of sexual repression and, you know, just not having sexual wellness. And (laughs) vaginismus is a real thing where women just cannot accept the penis because of trauma or religious barriers or menopause or, you know, you name it. So the point is, is that you now are using your platform to create immense change around the world with this theme of freedom at the center. That's at your core. And I just find that extremely exciting because you are now a celebrity, right? You're a thought leader. You have influence. And I think we can do some very big things together around the world. But tell us a little bit about the latest product you have been thinking about and we have been talking about because I believe you're most excited about this. I am very excited about this, Kate. And I want to say that, you know, for all of Kate's listeners, I'm sure you know this about Kate, but Kate is a freedom fighter. And I really feel that the universe brought us together for a purpose. Kate and I are going to Rwanda together in July to hand out sanitary napkins and ensure that women are not locked in barns 
because they're menstruating. And so Kate and I have started working together on multiple projects to free women around the world. And one of them that I'm very excited about is I just invented a new vibrator. (laughs) And I'm really, really excited about it. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And then Kate was like, you know, I would love to create a product that could really help women, you know, find their sexual freedom. And then it just was like this, it's something that I've been thinking in the back of my head. And when she said that, I was like, this is the woman I'm going to do this with. Like, we're going to make this happen. And then we're going to disseminate these vibrators to every religious community on the planet. And we're going to teach women that pleasure is freedom and beauty, that they don't need to ask permission, and that it is an innate right of every individual to self-realize and to enjoy what the universe or God or whatever name you'd like to give it has created inside of us. You know, and I do want to say, and I've been thinking about this for the entire podcast, that I highly respect the Jewish community. I highly respect Roman Catholics. My mother was Roman Catholic. She put the fear of God in me when I was growing (laughs) up. God forbid that I would touch my body or take contraception or, you know, enjoy sex. Whether you're Jewish, Catholic, Muslim, it's all the same. These barriers exist. And, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast with Ashley Judd, and we've traveled around the world, and we sit with women in slum dwellings in India who've been forced into marriages. Not dissimilar to your story, Julia. It's all the same. That's why I always say it's not about Judaism or Christianity or Islam or Hinduism. It's about fundamentalism. It's men utilizing religion as an excuse to keep women down, period. And Julia and I are going to change that. And you know what I love about this model that we've cooked up is there is a lot of women out there who can afford to buy a vibrator, right? So women who can afford to buy a vibrator, we will make it affordable and effective and an orgasm in a box. This will be an orgasm in a box that will be delivered to you. It's very unique. It's a very different kind of vibrator. I'm really excited about it. But we're not going to talk too much about it, but watch this space. And what I love about it is Julia has used her own experience of literally using a vibrator and saying, this is what's good about it. This is what's bad about it. This is what we need to change. And, you know, that's what you'll see that will come onto the market. However, we are going to make sure that women who can't afford it get their hands on it. Because a couple of things we know about this world is, first of all, half of the world bleeds during their period, right? It's a sign that we can make babies, right? So give women the dignity to protect themselves at that time of the month and be hygienic and respect her. Secondly, sex is good on your period, by the way, just saying. And we all have sex. So let's make sure we have sexual equality and make sure that every woman based on her background, religion, upbringing has access to not just the product, but also the information, right? It's the learnings, it's the education, it's the freedom, it's the get rid of the stigma that's associated. And as we started saying at the beginning of this podcast, like we're getting that. The media, the mainstream media are talking about it. And I think we have a real opportunity. So as I said, it would, the time has come 
We are coming to the end of the podcast, Julia. There's like a million trillion other things that we have to talk about, but that will come on podcast two, three, and four. (laughs) It has been an absolute delight getting to know you. We have so many projects that we're talking about that will change the future of the world. And I just feel blessed to have met you, Julia, honestly. I really do. I feel exactly the same to you, Kate. Seriously, you are extraordinary. (laughs) As are you. And... I believe very strongly that not just extraordinary women coming together, but women in general, we're all extraordinary. We all juggle a million things. I don't think people juggle like you juggle, Julia, because I don't know when you sleep. I don't. I'm so tired. Yeah, I know you are. You're doing a million things, but you seem to pull them off. And as I say, everything you do seems to be successful. So we definitely want to learn more about how you do that. And I'm very excited to go on this journey with you. Me too. Thank you, Kate. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show and I will talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for having me. That's it. I'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast 10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.